It, it starts with the mandate of not being committed to making somebody else wrong. And most people are so externally validated, which means that in order for me to feel good about what I feel, I need to have agreement from everybody else that it's right. If you're really intelligent, you'd start to understand that if I believe what I want to believe, or if I believe what I believe, to the extent where I'm happy to believe it, I don't actually require somebody else's agreement or validation in order to underline my beliefs. You have a great opportunity right now, if you've got a lot of uncertainty in the household, to show up as a pillar. Just tell the kids everything's going to be okay. What they're looking for is reassurance, especially in the heat of uncertainty with so many mixed messages with mixed agendas behind those messages that don't have their level of certainty at heart. You can tell your kids not to smoke until you're blue in the face, but if you're sparking up 20 a day, I've got news for you. Yeah, probably won't by the time they're 13, you're gonna be sharing cigarettes. Right now, you've lost your job, right? Right now, you've been laid off or you're furloughed or what have you, right? And you sat there at home and yeah, rather than reaching for the opportunity to demonstrate to your family that this is an incredible chance to give my kids a lesson in how to handle uncertainty, do they reach the opportunity or do they reach for the beer fridge? They reach for the Prozac. They reach for the Netflix remote. It's a choice. One thing to remember, guys, is that every single one of us is born with something that nobody can take away, and that is free will. How many lawsuits do you think lawyers are quite happily lining up for to go, oh, you made me wear a mask. I, I work as a waiter all day, but guess what? I've got allergies now, I've got asthma now, I've got this now, I'm feeling awful, yeah? Millions of people? That is the next wave of clogging up the courts when all of this BS unravels. Welcome to another edition of American Real, where this week I bring back our three-time guest, Peter Sage, who is just incredible. He gives such great concrete, insightful information. And I don't know, every time I talk to him, I feel so much better about myself, about the world, about where we're headed. And even though there's all this, you know, uncertainty and turmoil, he just has such a great way of talking about it because he's been practicing for a long time. And I know you're going to get a lot of value out of this because I certainly did. Please look for Peter's Book, the Inside Track. It's a great book. I read it. Uh, it's very emotional. He wrote it when he was in prison. And that's a whole story in and of itself. So you could learn more about how that all happened. But please get his book. I'll put the link in the show notes so you could get that as well for free. And speaking of books, we are, uh, we've just opened enrollment for our book course, How to Write a Bestseller in 90 Days or Less. If you've always wanted to write a book, if you had a burning desire to do so, let me help you do it. I've been through it time and again. I've helped others through it. It's not easy writing your first book, but when you have someone to hold your hand and to hold you accountable and to give you the tools and the insights on how to write your first book, it becomes uh, just a, a joy more than a chore. So I will put the link in the show notes for that as well. Enrollment is open. Would love to see you write your own book. It's something I'm very passionate about. 
Anyway, uh, I turn it back over to my very good friend, Peter Sage, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for watching and thank you for all your support. Welcome to a special live edition of American Real. Today, my guest is Peter Sage. You are a world-renowned international and serial entrepreneur, author, philosopher, and teacher with a unique way of looking at relating to life. You're also, you've also inspired tens of thousands of people worldwide to reinvent themselves. This is our first meeting since April of earlier this year, Peter. Welcome back to the show. Absolute pleasure to be here, as always, Roger, and been loving the work you've been putting out since then as well. So thank you for having me back. Thank you. And no, thank you for all that you do and, and all the inspiring content that you're putting out to the world. It's it's really, really needed right now. And lots has happened uh, since we last spoke in April. We thought back then things were just out of control and uh, things continue to change all the time. That's why I love talking to you because you have such a, a great way of explaining things uh, of the current situation of you know where we've gone, where we are, and where we're heading. So I can't wait to talk about that uh, with you today. But what's your take on, bring us up to date since April till now, at the end of July, what do you think has been happening in the world from your perspective? Before we dive into that, I mean, one of the things to, to be mindful of here, and especially for the people watching or listening, is to understand that everything that happens in the outer world is secondary to how you process things in the inner world, right? So whether you see somebody or whether you get engaged in a specific debate, it has far less to do with the debate than it does your relationship to it. And I preframe that because some of the things we may be talking about today could be quite controversial. In fact, they will be controversial because that's you know, part of why I'm here. And if you, before you get into attacking and defending your own model of the world, I'm going to invite you to leave a gap to ask different questions. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but the world is pretty polarized right now uh, in many different ways. And yeah, if you take the, uh, uh, the social media channel like Facebook, for example, is probably the, the best example of this. Yeah, it shouldn't be called a social channel. It should be called a social hand grenade, I think. And if you want to see an area where friends destroy themselves, families tear themselves apart, uh, yeah, lifelong connections have suddenly been polarized based upon people thinking that by giving more reasons why they're right, other people will suddenly switch and say, oh, yeah, you know something? Yeah, I am wrong. You are right. I, I, it's never going to happen. So it becomes this, again, like a social hand grenade where you, you say a comment, uh, type in something controversial, pull the pin, throw it in, and essentially run away and see what happens because it's all going to explode from there. So, yes, whether we get into the pros and cons of you know, COVID or COVID, uh, whether we get into the throes and cons of mask or unmasking the real deal, or whether it's to vaccinate or not vaccinate, all the other fun and palaver that's basically putting in, yeah, the Black Lives Matter or the Walmart Lives Matter and all that jazz. Yeah, just take a breath and stop being played so 
ah, unconsciously by your emotions. Because asking better questions is what will lead us to a greater outcome, not forcing agendas, projecting models of the world, staying committed to being stuck the way I am. Therefore, in order for me to feel better about who I am, what I think, I have to invalidate who you are and what you think and all of that stuff. So that's my kind of opening recommendation to people to turn around and say, look, there's a lot of stuff going on right now. There's a lot of high energy. There's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of like, you know, sides of the fence. Take a breath and yeah, see what shows up. And if you still want to be committed to your current model of the world, at the end of open, intelligent debate, fabulous. Yeah, no one's taking that away from you. But until then, there's an opportunity to potentially learn something or look at something different, even if it gives you the opportunity to say, yeah, now I'm, I'm, now I'm even more certain what I'm saying is right. Or, yeah. So that, that's where I'm at with that. No, and I appreciate you saying that. And last time we spoke, you, you were talking about asking the right questions. And I think that's great advice. Uh, I've been trying to implement that in, into my daily life, really, you know, really thinking about asking the right questions, because that's what it's all about, about being inquisitive. And then at the end of the day, making our own opinions. But um, I want to touch on something you just talked about earlier, and that is differences of opinion. And I can't think of any better place to start than in the household. So. I know just because of my own situation, my own family and extended family and friends, everybody is dealing with this right now where there's differences of opinion, even in the household. So, Peter, please talk about that. How do we how do we have these conversations with our spouses, with our kids, with our with our parents? How do how do we do that? What's the best way to approach it from your standpoint? It starts with the mandate of not being committed to making somebody else wrong. And most people are so externally validated, which means that in order for me to feel good about what I feel, I need to have agreement from everybody else that it's right. And that's a pretty lousy way to live, to be fair. Yeah. And if you want to fast track to uh, being able to uh, um, go to, to a, an early grave, a heart attack or a stress counselor, then try to get somebody else to be, do, say, or believe something that they currently don't you know, be, do, say, or believe that's more in alignment with what you want them to do rather than them. Right? That's, we've got no right. Uh, if you're really intelligent, you'd start to understand that if I believe what I want to believe or if I believe what I believe to the extent where I'm happy to believe it, I don't actually require somebody else is agreement or validation in order to underline my beliefs. It was a great phrase I was reminded by uh, by one of my students on one of our recent calls uh, when I was talking about this. And he says, you know, if you go back to uh, what I call one of our, our favorite documentaries, you know, The Matrix, and explain there's a scene there, and I believe it's Matrix 2, that Morpheus is challenged by one of the other uh, counselors and ship owners, uh, ship captains, about taking one of the ships away and contravening direct orders. Right. And one of the other captains comes up and says, Morpheus, not everybody believes what you believe. And his response was, my beliefs don't require them to. Now, right. when you can come from that place, which means your heart and your mind are aligned in a level of congruency, then you finally grow to a place of emotional maturity where you can 
be okay being you and allow other people to be them. But the human condition at lower levels of consciousness, which is exasperated by fear, which is promoted by the media, will usually require a, a, an egotistical position of attack and defend. And the fallacy, and you can see it played out on every comment block, on every meme on Facebook, you know, pretty much, is yeah, to an extent a little bit on LinkedIn, but it's, it's kind of a different animal. Yeah, not so much Facebook as your kind of you know, playground you know, as opposed to your college campus you know, here for, for this kind of conversation. And yeah, you know, if you turn around and say to somebody, yeah, you know, oh, the reason you're wrong is, or that's BS because, and here's 15 links that prove my point, knowing that they're not going to click one of them, that everybody's coming to the table with confirmation bias. And everybody isn't actually have a vested interest in the actual argument as much as they have a vested interest in being right about their point of view of the argument. And when we start to peel the onion back, that kind of puts us all literally in the kindergarten playground. Right. You know? I think about that all the time. It's so true. So me being able to come up with facts, figures, and debate about why I, and you see this on debates on TV, right? You see this with people like, you know, let's pick a controversial figure, again, more polarizing your side of the water, yeah, Ben Shapiro, for example. Yeah. And I'll walk into a, a college campus, absolutely destroy, for the best part, any kind of debate argument that was loosely put against his point of view, and be able to outpoint, outposition, outargue pretty much anybody that he comes up with. In the main, does he change anybody else's mind when he leaves? No. They're still committed to their original things. It's got nothing to do with the facts of the matter. That's secondary to your ego's need to feel right about why somebody else is wrong. So let's take that as a context. So when we are talking about in the household, if the energy that we are bringing to the table is one of counterpoint, is one of... Yeah, the reason I'm right and you're not is fill in whatever blank you want to go on, whatever Wikipedia page you want to link to, right? It's irrelevant. You're not going to win the argument. You may think you do in your logical head because you had more things stacked up on your side of the debate table, but that's not where the argument is won. The argument is won in capturing the heart, not the mind. The mind will always find a way to justify what the heart feels. So if you're in the house and you think that you know, wearing a mask is the stupidest thing you could come up with, and your partner is thinking that not wearing a mask is the most irresponsible thing you could ever come up with, then the engagement is around honoring your partner's choice. You can explain why your... Oh, you can explain why your making your choice and why that doesn't invalidate theirs and why you support her in their choice or him in his choice. That's okay. You've got no issues with it. There's no, you, you can't argue with somebody that's not pushing back. You know, can't argue with somebody that's not pushing back. So when you come to a place of, uh, it, it's debate is similar almost to unsolicited coaching. If you've ever tried unsolicited coaching, everybody's an expert at it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fancy term for basically giving you my opinion. 
<laughs> right? And we wonder why it doesn't have an impact. And the reason it doesn't have an impact is that the primary human fear that we suffer from as a species, individually, collectively, is the fear that we're not enough. And therefore, we won't be loved, ultimately. And how many layers of the onion want to pull back to get to that awareness? Most people's ego will stop them from owning it. But if you do the research, and I've been in the game for human behavior for 30 years, yeah, I, know, I know my stuff. Uh, and I've seen it in every culture, age, yeah, condition. The fear that we're not enough. And so from yeah, when you approach somebody with a counterpoint, what it does, it for them to accept your counterpoint to the extent where they then acquiesce their model of the world in favor of yours, essentially triggers the fear or validates the fear that they weren't good enough, smart enough, right enough, informed enough, fill in the blank. So therefore, and this is a great phrase to remember, taught by one of my great mentors, George Zalicki, said the cost of awareness is responsibility. And I'll give you a very simple example. Why do smokers smoke? They are not less intelligent than non-smokers, even though you couldn't construct a valid, yeah, practical argument on any level of yeah, sanity that would, con that would make smoking something that you should do. Just, there is none. Yeah, maybe 40 years ago when doctors told you you should. Yeah, those days are gone. We know that. So why do smokers still smoke? They see the warnings on the packet. They can read. They're not, they're not dumb. The reason is because the cost of awareness is responsibility. In other words, if you were to own the awareness that smoking is bad for you and you were to continue to smoke, that would essentially mean admitting to yourself you're a fool. So what happens is the awareness is blocked. It's not internalized. It stays at an intellectual level of understanding, which means nothing. That's why most people are well-read and broke, right? Because you know, they know what to do. They just don't do what they know. Because behavior change happens at an emotional level of learning, not an intellectual level of learning. So when you come to smokers, uh, the cost of owning that awareness is not allowed in because it would trigger the fear, that, you know, the primary fear it would light the bulb in their brain, but they're not enough. And that circuit gets broken by disowning, discounting that awareness. It's the same principle for the reason you should wear a mask is, and if you're a non-mask wearer, boom, that's a warning on a cigarette packet and you like smoking. You see it. Yeah, the senses pick up the data. You're not processing it. You've got no vested interest in you know, internalizing that. That's never going to make it to an emotional level of understanding to cause a behavior change. In fact, you're thinking of things that you can counterpoint to essentially deflect uh, that awareness and put it back onto the other person. That's what I mean. It's not about the actual debate. It's about the psychology of what's going on and whether we want to be right or wrong. Man, uh, I really love the way you put that. Because it's, it's something that we could all relate to, you know, smoking as, as an example. Um, and staying on that same example, Peter, when someone does ultimately quit smoking, okay, and they, they realize, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to quit. What, what changes, what triggers within them to be able to act differently than they did, say, for the past 20 years that they've been smoking? 
Well, the, the difference between an intellectual level of understanding and an emotional level of understanding is the difference between reading the warning on the packet and a doctor turning around and saying, hey, Mr. Smith, uh, we just got the blood test results and the headaches you've been having. Yeah, that was bad news for you. If you take one more cigarette, it is a 70% chance of triggering an immediate fatal stroke. Now, you didn't just suddenly become smarter. Your IQ just didn't suddenly rise. You weren't suddenly more informed about the dangers of smoking. You knew all of that stuff before. You just chose to keep it at an intellectual level. Now it's emotional. Or maybe your six-year-old daughter runs up and grabs your cigarettes and throws them away and says, Daddy, Daddy, I want you to walk me up the aisle when I get married and I don't think you'll be there because you're going to smoke and starts right. running and crying. And you're like, oh, my God, twist the knife. Yeah. So that's when it can become the penny drops, the eureka moment. Most eureka moments are not new knowledge. It's existing previous knowledge that is heard from a different emotional space. Hmm. Okay. Now, that will get change to happen. That's where change yeah, will start to shift. But to make it lasting, and this is where we see a lot of the issue in today's world, is where you bring in the identity. You see, a smoker who decides to quit because of the emotional pain and sees themselves as a smoker who's quit, I can already tell you it's going to be a matter of weeks if they're lucky before they go back to smoking. Why? Because their identity is I am a smoker and I'm fighting that identity's behavior by saying I've quit using willpower and willpower has a time limit. It's just part of the game. It's, it's not a permanent thing. That's why motivation wears off and inspiration is the nuclear fission of the human soul. Uh, and one comes from self-serving, one comes from serving others most of the time. So if you come to a, a situation whereby if you have a, uh, uh, a behavior change because of an emotional level of understanding, and then you go and make a decision that I am now a non-smoker, that's a different identity. And psychology, using the term cognitive dissonance, will essentially tell you that if you act out of accordance with how you see yourself, there is an emotional unsettling that screams out to be rectified. It's like a giant magnet of your identity. It's pulling your behavior back in. So choose your identity because your identity will define you. you know, I spent 15 years working as a trainer for Tony Robbins. Uh, and one thing that Tony said very powerfully said that the strongest force in the human personality is the need to remain consistent with how you define yourself. In other mm -hmm. words, your identity. Genius. It's cognitive dissonance, what he's referring to. So let's see how that plays out in today's world. Two friends, drinking at the bar, known each other for a while. You know, went to college together. Buddies. Under the label of buddies, we have a very harmonious type of conversation. Now let's, yeah, anything you put the words I am to, by the way, yeah, becomes your identity. Okay, now let's throw that into the mix. I am a Democrat. I am a Republican. Now all of a sudden, we're not buddies. Now all of a sudden, that persona, that identity is causing me, on behalf of a political system I'm not even really a part of, so true. Fight and venomously destroy my own personal friendships and reputations and, and, and bridges and because I've now been hijacked by an ideology coupled with the fear that I'm not enough if I'm proven wrong. 
And I'm so insecure about my own beliefs, I only feel good about them if I get somebody else to agree with them, or if I find somebody that disagrees, I have to prove them wrong. You freaking kidding me? So identity is exceptionally powerful. And the greatest identity that we can rise to from a level of emotional understanding and emotional maturity is I am full stop. Let me ask you a question. Who are you without your name, Roger? Who am I without my name? Hmm. Question for everybody listening. Hmm. I am... I am a soul who is trying to raise level of global consciousness to inspire and help people. See, that, that leads far more to what you would like to do. But even the label that we associate our identity to primarily, our name, wasn't even our choice. Right. Hmm? And most people are trying to change their self-image because they're denying whatever they have after I am. I am ugly. I am not good enough. I am too poor. I am, you know, the, the ego's got a whole load of blanks. It's very happily to throw in on that, right? Yes. When you can become okay with where you are now, I don't care how much you're in debt, and I've been probably a million or two or more in debt more than most people listening. Uh, I don't care what your body shape currently is. If you are resisting any part of who you are, you will be stuck to it for a fairly long time. And if you say, I am stupid, no amount of degrees on the wall is going to solve your stupid problem. Why? Because it runs deeper than that. The second you're okay being overweight, you can choose to be thin. But while you hate being fat, you're going to keep getting fat. That's, and that's not me saying it. Let's go look in the rearview mirror of your life. Okay. So coming to a, I am full stop, when we can be okay, everything that comes after I am is Velcro. And this is the challenge because so many of us grew up with even if they were well-intentioned authority figures, teachers, you know, coaches, ministers, rabbis, you know, parents, in-laws, whatever it may be. Oh, you'll never amount to it. Oh, you're so stupid. Oh, you're just not cut out for that. Oh, you're not clever enough. I said, no, you can't take that class because yeah, I don't think you, you'll. All of that stuff we take on as labels. And the biggest challenge is most people think they're put on with superglue. It's only Velcro. Everything after I am is Velcro. When you realize that it's just a label, and the only thing that keeps it on there is your willingness to pay attention to it and accept it. If you take off, I'm a Democrat, and I'm damn proud of it. Well, I'm sure your ego is. It's pretty much what's going on. So, Peter, if I may, let me turn the question around, because I'm sure other people want to know as well, because I want to know. If I ask you the same question, Peter Sage, who are you? Consciousness is complete. And I don't want to get too nebulous here because a lot of people aren't educated around consciousness in the way that yeah, makes it more practical. And 
yeah, on, on biology, you have it reduced to a byproduct of brain function, which clearly it isn't, never has been, never will be. The brain doesn't produce consciousness any more than a television produces programs or radio writes music. Uh, on the other side, it's very esoteric, come by our, let's hold hands and sing to the divine. Right? So, you know, your left brains and your right brains seem to be a little polarized themselves around that concept. But consciousness is primary. We know that now in physics, unless you're, yeah, I say your identity is I am a Newtonian, yeah, uh, you know, stick in the mud. And the challenge with the laws of current physics, as is taught in our institutions, to validate the great, yeah, Sir Isaac Newton and co, is that they have mastered exceptionally intelligently the rules of the physical world. What they seem to be ignoring and that digital physics and just about every other branch of you know, biocentrism, et cetera, will point to and answers the questions better on is that that is a subset of something more fundamental. The superset is outside of the abstract that the three-dimensional mind likes to be able to get hold of and label. And so I say, oh, look, there's a tree. It's not a freaking tree. Tree's a four-letter word that soothes the mind so it thinks it understands something. If I were to say, oh, that's what we call a tree. Right? But when it comes to consciousness, this 13-letter word that's the hard problem of science that they'll never be able to solve in the Newtonian paradigm is somewhat nebulous. So the best thing we can do is come up with a word for it. But you are, I am, that essence. Yeah? The person who you are when you meditate and it's black and you're aware and there's no data being processed. There's no physical sense data being processed. There's no mental sense data being processed. You just are. Go to the Bible. I am. I am that. I am. Same deal. Jesus didn't say, I, Jesus, am the Lord. He said, I am the Lord. Consciousness. Anyway, depends how many rabbit holes you want to run down. No, no, I appreciate it. But uh, it, it makes me think of something that you talk about uh, quite a bit and, and that. And if, if you could please explain this to people, because I think it'll give a whole additional dimension to what you're talking about right now is when you go through the to me, by me, through me concept. Uh, I think that's something people really relate to, if you don't mind, Peter. Uh, absolutely. And again, this uh, if you want a masterclass in this, then. Um, the the map of consciousness by David Hawking. You can see it on my, my back wall there. There he is, bless him at the top, uh, alongside his map of consciousness. Should have won a Nobel Prize for, for this, but uh, unfortunately, I don't think the people that give out Nobel Prizes calibrate too high on that map. But when it comes to understanding consciousness, because it's so nebulous, I tend to chunk it into four different levels. And this speaks to one of the, the greatest quotes from Einstein, in my opinion, where he said, you cannot solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that created the problem. And again, you see this out in the real world right now, playing out you know, so easily. Uh, the level of consciousness that created the problem is the same level of consciousness in the debates that are trying to argue about that problem, which is why there's no progress on that problem. But when it comes to consciousness, what does he mean? How do you get your arms around that? How do you make that real? Well, again, I, I tend to chunk it into four levels, and I'm sure people will relate to this. Uh, again, it's a model. And please understand, models are only models. They are useful to the point where they can give you some practical application of understanding. But they're just models. You know, the, the two-dimensional model of reality, now, 
we now know is not a, you know, a proper representation of reality. But the two-dimensional model is still very useful for when it comes to architects and building you know, houses. Right? You don't factor in the curvature of the Earth into that model because it's too small and it's practical enough to get it. It's a model. Right? But the map is not the territory. So when it comes to this, it's a model. And if you find use out of it, great. If not, don't worry about it. So you know, my, my beliefs don't require your beliefs to agree with them in order for me to feel good about my beliefs. Yeah. So if we chunk consciousness into four levels, and you can project this into, into the mirror, or you can look at your friends and family, and without getting too judgmental, look at it from a place of observation and understanding, not projection of why you're better or right. That's, a, that's my preframe. So the lowest level of consciousness is what I call the level of to me. To me is the, the mantra of I would have the house I want, I would have the you know, argument I want, we would have the president we want. Yeah, that's not going to. But everything happens to me. It is the quintessential mantra of the victim. And there's a challenge with that. And you know, I don't make up the challenge, go test it for yourself. The challenge is that nowhere in the universe is the concept of victim rewarded. Even if the appearance is in the short term, over time, it certainly is. So uh, if you think that uh, misery likes company, well, misery likes miserable company. And so victimhood tends to surround itself with people that agree with it in order to validate why it's not their fault. And unfortunately, uh, here's the thing. Um, for people watching, let me explain something. We all have a story. Everybody's got a story. The challenge is this. 80% of people don't care about your story and they don't care about your problems. The other 20% of people are glad you have them. Hmm. So running around as poor me because, fill in the blank, is essentially you playing hide and seek with your potential behind a lack of courage to step through your fears. Because if I'm a victim, then it's not my fault. It's not me, it's because, yeah, my parents. It's not me, it's because, yeah, my ex did this. It's not me if you had my boss, if you had my economy, if you had my health background, whatever. Yeah, and as long as you play that game, you will be rewarded with more confirmation of victimhood. That's how it works. So a lot of people finally get to that, uh, and they grow out of it, and they realize that, unfortunately, that the universe isn't there to reward people for no effort. You know, if I'm complaining that the fire's cold, um, I'm not prepared to chop any wood, and then I'm going to bitch about the fire all night, I got news to you. Yeah, hypothermia is coming. So when people finally realize or get into enough pain that they have to do something different, then they move to the next level, and that's called the level of binding. And binding is where you basically take the world by its throat and you bend it into shape. Because if I want the house, I want the car, I want the body, I want the relationship, then it's going to happen by me. And you go from the victim level of consciousness into the achiever level of consciousness. And you basically get out and hustle. And yeah, that's where most of personal growth is focused on the whole domain of transferring people from two meter by me. And then once they're in by me, selling them more strategies on how to be better in by me. Yeah, new super 21 days, fast track to your goals, kind of yeah, instant, whatever, fix my life in 20 seconds, John. <laughs> so uh, it's by me stuff. And by the way, it's a downside better than staying in to me. And this is not right or wrong. Let me ask you a question. What's better, a five-year-old or a 15-year-old? 
Neither. I mean, they're both good. Daffodil or a tulip? Same answer. Exactly. Acorn or a sapling? Sapling or an oak tree? Same deal, right? There's not better or worse. So unhook from the spiritual ego projection of thinking I'm better than those beneath me because we like to hierarchy at that site. No. Each is an expression of where somebody is on their own journey of potential. That's all. If a five-year-old turns around and says, no, hey, see, honestly, dad, you don't, you, you don't get it, right? If nobody gets, listen, I, I spoke to 10 adults today. Nobody understands that the moon is made of cheese. You're, <laughs> you're absolutely, everybody knows the moon's made of cheese. My friend told me the moon's made of cheese. I saw a book where the moon was made of cheese. The moon's made of cheese. I'm a thousand percent convinced. And you're not talking me out of it, right? Well, guess what? You don't turn around and say, you stupid five-year-old, let me go show you the geology reports from NASA and the Apollo missions as to you know, why we know that the moon's not made of cheese. Well, of course not. They're a five-year-old. You let them be a five-year-old. There's a lot of the emotional five-year-olds running around in adult bodies these days, right? And so, yeah, but that's not right or wrong. You don't look at them and scoff. You have compassion for the fact that biological maturity and emotional maturity are not correlated. And when you own that fact, great. You, know, you can allow you to be you and let others be them without some form of judgment imposed on hijack, you know, the, the, the egos hijacking the spiritual narrative to say that you're better. So if you're in by me and you see somebody in to me, send them love. Hold a space for them. Then you move into the next level because by me is pretty exhausting. Probably been there for a while. I've, uh, I was certainly there for a long time. There is another level. And by the way, by me is the expert domain of the Newtonian materialist, because what you're dealing with is the scene that you're currently in in the movie, and you have to go and fix it. You're dealing with causality. You're dealing with cause and effect. You're dealing with being able to go make stuff happen by your own physical expression, yeah? guided by your mental abilities and acuity. So that's all you're left with. Whereas there are people that just seem to have things together where it's not as much of a struggle and effort as it is for most people in by me, which is pretty exhausting. You're in the river, you're swimming upstream, you're giving it large, you're hustling, you're bending that branch back. And the second you relax and take your foot off the gas, slash it back in the face. So there are a lot of people that get to the next level, which is through me, right? Okay. And so through me is where life flows through you. It's where things just happen. We call it, or to quote the originator of the phrase, Carl Jung, synchronicity happens. And of course, synchronicity can't be allowed to happen in a material world of randomness, even though we know it's not randomness. Chaos theory proved that. There are patterns and hidden orders at work beyond what we see as an expression of physical that show uh, an implicate order. It's just what it is. And anyone thinks they're smart enough to explain that, good luck. Because uh, most of the hypothesis are relying on way too many assumptions. It can't be proven. So when it comes to through me, through me is where you're in flow. Through me is where, again, you just, you're at a higher level of consciousness. And the reason that I say that is because you're practicing conscious non-resistance. You know the river of life winds. You know it bends and twists and turns. There are no straight lines in nature. You know that yeah, to get from A to B, the fastest way as a straight line only exists theoretically on paper. If you want to go in the fastest way to, to work, you know, leave your driveway and try and drive in a straight line to work. See what happens. Yeah, your neighbor's wall may have something to say about it you know, or the nearest intersection. So you know, we understand that through me operates at a higher level of non-linear reality, okay. which supersedes part of the superset, transcends the subset 
Yeah, which is why Einstein, seven months before his death, said that he spent a third of his life trying to find a grand unifying theory and realized that he'd failed because he had to find a way to sidestep yeah, space-time, three-slash-fourth-dimensional reality. He just didn't have a clue where to start because he didn't have access to the information and understanding and equations we now have. But he predicted it. E equals MC squared. What does that say? Essentially, in layman's terms, that nothing in the physical world can go faster than the speed of light. Because when it does, it starts to get squirrely. Ooh, that breaks down the laws of physics. Well, the speed of light is pretty easy to understand. Why C is a constant and why it's baffled scientists for years that are looking through the subset of you know, the physical matter reality. The speed of light is nothing more than the refresh rate on the simulation that we're in. And nobody can run faster than that because obviously it wouldn't allow you to. You can't, you can't see movement on your screen faster than the screen can refresh. It's pretty simple when you break it down without going into too much of the physics right now. But you get it. Anyway, through me operates outside of the linear construct and confinement of the subset. And you, know, you call it law of attraction, you call it you know, synchronicity, you call it you know, whatever you want. And materialists have to call it coincidence. And again, to quote yeah, the great Joe Dispenza, who's doing a lot of work in here, if it happens once, it's an incident. If it happens twice, it's a coincidence. But if it keeps happening, there's a pattern to it. And where there's a pattern, there are rule sets that govern that pattern mathematically. We now know particles are not particles. They're probability distributions. It's pretty damn simple. Okay. But anyway, without getting too far off track, there is another level above through me, and that's where you really merge. What I said earlier about I am full stop, where you become conscious. Non-denominational circles, they call it oneness. And to give a great analogy there, if you take the blood cells in the body, if you get a red blood cell and a white blood cell and they have to meet in one of your arteries, and they would have a, a sense of individuation about each other. Yeah. There's a white blood cell, different color, born at a different time, on a different life path, different job to do, different set of instructions to follow, different programming, looks different, and going to die at a different time. They wave at each other going through the bloodstream. But to you and I, at a higher level of awareness and consciousness, we realize that that's all part of a unifying you know, organism called a body. We don't throw a funeral when a blood cell dies. What most people understand when they get to asthma and they cross the threshold of duality, where everything becomes oneness, and you'll hear every spiritual master preach this, you'll hear everyone that's had a near-death experience you know, essentially try to articulate this, is that we realize that we're all part of oneness. It's just that you and I have a sense of individuation as we're, you know, blood cells in the universal body of consciousness as we pass by each other in the artery. Get the idea. So, yeah, to give up victimhood and get into achiever, give up blame and replace it with personal responsibility. You do those two things, you can move up the ladder. You want to go from by me to through me, give up uh, the need for control because the only thing you can do in by me is can control your current environment and replace it with trust in something bigger than your current environment that your sense data will give you interpretation. And then if you go from through me to as me, give up the illusion of separateness, replace it with, again, the same thing every spiritual master was taught, unconditional love. Well, to be more accurately, Jesus taught unconditional love as a way of life. The Buddha taught self-realization through inner enlightenment, but that's, you know, we're getting technical. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for explaining that so clearly. Can you talk about, for people that, uh, you know, I'm not sure we've all felt 
parts of these depending on everyone at a different level, right? So, but for you, someone who teaches it, who's been through many, you know, I don't know what stage or level you 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 you're at at this point, but give us some insight as to the feeling of of surrendering, I guess, for a better word, to the different levels of because I, you know, I've I've experienced some of this. Um, and I know how it makes you feel, um, but I'd love to hear it from you how it makes you feel, and when you teach others how how it makes them feel. Well, one thing I'll explain is that there's a difference between a state of consciousness and a stage of consciousness. Your state is kind of where you reside. Uh, a state is a momentary place that you can visit. Yeah, where do you live? Where do you visit? For example, uh, I know you, Roger. We've met. Uh, I think you're an incredible guy. I don't see you as an angry person. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're a pretty down-to-earth, level-headed guy. But yep. that doesn't discount the fact there are times where you can be angry. Absolutely. Right? But it's not who you are. It's not where you're at. It's just a place you visit. It's another place you live. There are other people that live in anger. Now, they may visit serenity at some point. They may have some time of calm or joy or happiness, but they're going to default back to their stage at some point. So states and stages need to be understood as a category. Yeah. I, when you understand that levels of consciousness are primary, and I, I chunk it into four levels because it's easy, and three of them are really the only things that operate unless you want to be enlightened on a mountaintop for 20 years of meditating. Right, we'll have some sudden spiritual experience, which we yeah, are 100 million to one. So uh, when, if you want to take it further, then obviously Hawkins delineates that into 16 different levels in Power Versus Force. It's one of the most incredible books on understanding human behavior uh, that you'll ever uh, ever come across. Okay. And But let me explain why this is primary. Why inner world uh, leads outer world. Why outer world follows inner world. Why your level of consciousness is the one thing you want to be working on, not your bank balance or your job description, resume, or any of that kind of stuff. Right? You're looking at life through the wrong end of the telescope. Let me give you an example. You're walking down the street, and there's a homeless person sitting just outside one of the alleyways. Now, depending on what level of consciousness you calibrate at, and I'll extrapolate into Hawkins' levels here, depends upon your model of reality as to what's about to happen. So let's just say you calibrate down in the sort of to me level and your predominant emotion is fear. Yeah. You are going to be wary of that person. You're going to keep one eye on him. You're going to walk a safe enough distance you're, or across the other side of the street. Your peripheral vision, your spider senses are tingling. It's like, you know, you're, you're going to be mindful. If you calibrate at desire, you're going to look at that person and be more motivated never to be there. All right? I'm going to go out and make sure I never get homeless. I'm going to earn enough money so that that's not me. Same homeless guy. You calibrate a pride. Yeah? You're going to look at that guy and think, why, is he, why, why doesn't the freaking local authorities do something about these homeless people bringing down the neighborhood? Yeah, it's affecting property prices for God's sake. Just look at it. It's like this guy's clubbing up. Go, go be some. Go, go be on the lower east side for goodness' sake. Yeah, you know, you know, that's what yourself talks about. Right? It's prideful. Right? Or you're going to look down on them with contempt. Get a job. Yeah, I did. 
same homeless person. You cross over into courage. You can look at him and see if he's okay. Maybe have a little bit of concern. You move up into states of willingness, higher conscious. You're going to start thinking, wow, what can I do to help the situation? Either individually, you okay, buddy? Do you want a sandwich? Yeah, if it's cold, you may want to think about giving him a coat, something like that. Or yeah, you may want to tackle the problem on at the social level. It's never going to happen for someone calibrating fear. You calibrate at even higher levels, like love. Yeah, you're going to want to go sit with the guy, have empathy for him, listen to his story, and just hold a space for him. Now, the interesting thing is the guy hasn't opened his mouth yet. Your level of consciousness determines your reality moment by moment by moment. So if you can come to a place where you can get into a, what I call that the, the high levels of through me, where ultimately, to quote one of my mentors, man, uh, some of you probably know him, he's, he's quite old, actually, about 800 and something, I think, his name's Master Yoda. <laughs> Train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. Now, just hearing that statement, if you calibrate in fear or into me, you're like, screw you. I've already lost everything. I ain't losing anything else. Right? Or like, oh, no, I've got to lose some more in order to be able to you know, go up the ladder. No. Yeah, it's, you get the idea. You're in by me. Train yourself to let go of everything I fear to lose. I, I'm too busy trying to accumulate you hear it in through me, you hear it from a place of, oh, everything in the physical world is subject to the law of impermanence. I get it. Therefore, everything that I'm afraid to lose becomes an area of weakness where I develop an emotional attachment, which proves a vulnerability. So if I'm afraid to lose my partner, I start to become a little more needy. I start to become a little more codependent. I start to become the very thing that's most likely to push them away. Everything that you are you know, uh, afraid to let go of is a wall that you're leaning on. And the degree that you're afraid to let go of what it is you fear to lose is the angle that you're leaning on is putting more pressure on it, which is causing more cracks, which at some point, I've got news for you. Every single relationship that you have will end. Sorry. Just part of the rule set. I don't care if it's a relationship with your partner, relationship with your kids, relationship with your job, your car, or your body. At some point, that relationship will end, correct? Yes, 100%. Yeah, so when you train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose, you actually discover something that most people never get, freedom. Hmm. And it's from that place you can give the best of who you are. Now, I'm not saying be careless, reckless, or don't give a damn. That's a different message. I'm saying look at where your attachments are and look at how you show up around that because you're probably showing up more from a fear-based reality and therefore bringing in your, your, your gifts rather than giving them. But at some point, uh, whatever it is that you're afraid to let go of, it's going to go.
you know, never seen a hearse with a roof rack. You know, you're not going to take it with you. Only people that tried that with the Egyptians and what happened? We dug it up and stole it. Right? So, you know, lighten up a little. Oh, I'm going to lose my job. Well, you're still living in a time in human history where I can give you a hundred things to be grateful for, unless you want to go swap it with your great-great-grandparents you know, who risked dying of septicemia when they went and cut the rose up you know, to give to his partner. Hmm. That's how penicillin was invented, by the way. Hmm. Peter, when you're coaching someone and they're in that state, Okay, that, that you just explained, where they just lost their job and they're miserable, they're blaming everyone. How do you? What do you say? How do you? How do you get to them to hopefully help them see so they could start to turn things around? Well, obviously, when I'm coaching people, it's predominantly filtered through what level of consciousness they're operating at. Okay, just as I just mentioned with the homeless guy. Same outer world scenario, very different inner world interpretation based on where I am, which, by the way, is why you can read the Bible and have as many different interpretations of the message as there are people based upon not the words, they're black and white, based upon the level of consciousness. If you calibrate a pride and you read Jesus says, if the enemy hits you, turn the other cheek, you're going to be saying, screw you. Right? That's weakness. That's being acquiescing. That's letting your enemies walk all over you. That's fill in the blank, fill in the blank. Because they're at that level of consciousness. Pride is like, no way. Right? If you're at a level of guilt, shame, apathy, and you hear that, you're going to feel as if, well, I clearly deserve it. I'm worthless. So, yeah, hit me again. Victim. If you're at a higher level where you're calibrating in the, yeah, uh, sort of high conscious and sort of more loving, joyous, harmonious, yeah, compassionate states, you see the genius in that because if somebody's trying to control you by giving you a slap, either physically or metaphorically, you're Teflon. Didn't affect me. You call me a name, call me another one. Like your opinion of me is none of my business. Right? Get the idea? It's like it's where you calibrate. So if I'm coaching somebody who is, if they're in victimhood, I'm not looking to change their circumstance. That is a fool's game. Now, when you understand the difference between content and context, it will be a life-changing awareness for you. And I know you do. I'm just putting this out for people listening. Right? So when you realize that yeah, content is basically all we've got in to me and by me to deal with. That is very difficult because most people don't have the ability to change the content of their life at the speed or the yeah, uh, enormity of what would want to fit their pictures to take away the stress or the pain and the pressure. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm $40,000 in debt and blah, blah, blah. I just need to go earn $40,000. And I don't know how to do that, so I'm upset and I'm stressed and I've just lost my job and yada, yada, right? So when it comes to trying to change content, that is secondary. And again, outer world follows inner world. Context is always a game changer. Give me an example. I was, uh, uh, as you know, I had quite the graduation event uh, uh, three years ago. And yes. now well, I ended up as the only non-criminal in Britain's most violent jail. And uh, 
that's uh, signified in the book. I think you're about to show that, yeah, the inside track, which uh, uh, as I'm very, again, blessed and grateful has changed the lives of virtually every single person that's read it. Now, if you check any review, it's, it's stunning. I'm, I'm so humbled that I had the opportunity to do that. But I know I was there as a secret agent of change. Yeah, never been accused of a crime. Yeah, still no criminal record. I was, I was sent there by the universe to essentially, yeah, help people. I knew that. So there's one time where I was dealing with uh, a guy called Brad, murderer, committed murder when he was 22 years old. He'd already been inside for over 22 years. Now, he was angry, upset, and for the first 10 years, pretty violent and kicking back at the system. Now, when I met Brad, I spent time with him on the first you know, evening we met. And he was despondent, upset, thinks he'd ruined his life. Now, the reason he was upset is because obviously he was inside and he thought he'd spent the best part you know, of half his life wasted. Can you change that? No. What's happened has happened. The milk's spilt. The milk is spilt. Arguing over something that's already happened or crying about it is stupid because it's happened. Right? No one's got a time machine. So it's not about changing the content. I can't let him out of jail. That's, so he can't change that. So how do you shift the mindset when everything on the outer world doesn't look as if it can change or you're making up a story that says, yeah, my life's over and yeah, yeah. You change the context. And most people's problems, Roger, come from, sorry to say it, but I'm going to say it, them being too focused on themselves. Mm-hmm. And another phrase I learned from Tony years ago, he said, power moves to those in direct proportion to their willingness to serve. Yeah, beautiful. And when it comes to a lot of our own to me, it's all about me, me, me. Right? And so with Brad, I turned around and I said, listen, he was trying to get up for parole. And he'd already been turned down a couple of times. But he was getting to a point where he was going to be allowed out on like a, a first, like you're allowed to go out into town and then come back after a few hours. And if you do that, OK, you're allowed out without supervision and come back and then you're allowed to go and have one night at home and then come back. It's like a reintegration into society. Okay. You've been in 22 years, right? And one thing that it taught me in terms of non-judgment, people say, oh, everyone in prison is bad. Well, no, prison isn't full of bad people. Yes, there are some bad people who are in prison. Yeah, for those, yeah, uh, contradictors out there. However, prison is full of a lot of good people that have made bad choices. It's just a fact. And with Brad, he was one of those guys. He grew up on a gang in a council estate, yeah, in a rough part of town. Every, all the kids carried them and carried knives. He's arguing with a guy in a bar one night. They both pull out a knife and, like, they've, they've been drinking. Some ego-fueled, typical early 20s kind of significance argument ensues. And next minute, there's a scuffle and one guy's lying on the floor, bleeding to death. One stupid, you know, one act of stupidity, yeah, changes an entire life and takes another one out of the game. Can't change that. But he's not a murderer in terms of that's his identity. He didn't wake up that morning and said, I want to kill somebody. Right? And after 10 years of screaming at the system and like, you know, whatever, he realized he can't, the system didn't care. And he realized that he had to do some inner work to, to move forward and deal with it. But he was, he was stuck. Kind of like how a lot of people feel right now. 
And so I sat with Brad and I said, look, right now, if you are, if you were in front of a group of kids, teenagers, which by the way is the highest rate of, of knife offenses right now in the UK, is aged between 10 and 17. So that if you were to sit in front of a room full of kids and were to be asked the question, is it cool to carry a knife? What would your response be? You almost recoiled. Oh my God, I'd have to tell them. It's, it, you know, don't do it. I mean, it could, it could go from you know, feeling cool and big or whatever to ruining your life in a heartbeat. Now, most kids will hear that message from a social worker or a police officer or some whatever, and it doesn't stick. It's intellectual level of awareness, uh, awareness never gets emotionalized. Why? Not their language, not their tribe. Somebody walking in after 22 years inside for murder, a night crime, to passionately expose the fact that, listen, this ain't cool. Don't do it. That's street cred. That's, yeah, that's where they can hear it from. I said, so I now start focusing, Brad, not on poor me because I've lost my life, liberty, job, whatever. What can I do to serve and contribute? He says, yeah, but I've wasted 22 years of my life. I'm like, no, you haven't. You've been in teacher training. Right? You've got more credibility, more qualification to walk in and stop other people. Now, nothing's going to bring the guy back that you stabbed. Right? That's, that's a fool's game to play. But what if your actions could actually help stop other people being killed? Now society is going to look at him in a different light. They're not going to be suspicious that, oh, he's a murderer. He might be doing it again, which you know, zero chance of that after 22 years of contemplating your silly mistake. But instead, they're now seeing him as somebody who's preventing more murders rather than committing more murder. You get the idea? Yes, 100%. You shift the context. Yes. Right now, you've lost your job. Right? right now, you've been laid off or you're furloughed or what have you. Right, And you sat there at home and yeah, rather than reaching for the opportunity to demonstrate to your family that this is an incredible chance to give my kids a lesson in how to handle uncertainty. Do they reach for that opportunity or do they reach for the beer fridge? They reach for the Prozac. They reach for the Netflix remote. It's a choice. We all have free will and that ties us back into our original point about you know, arguments and counterpoints. One thing to remember, guys, is that every single one of us is born with something that nobody can take away, and that is free will, which means that somebody has the absolute right to come up and call me an asshole. Someone has the absolute right to write some crap about me on social media. And you see all the people, oh, I'm so offended. How dare you? You have no right to do that. Well, actually, they do because they have free will, and you don't get to take that away. Now, however... Just like somebody has the absolute right to come up, put a nine millimeter in my head and pull the trigger. It's, it's their right. They have free will. Now, choices have consequences. So somebody has the right to do that, but then they'll probably end up spending the rest of their life behind bars. Hmm? I want two dogs will be looking for a new, yeah. Oh, no. But apart from that, uh, when we understand that everybody has the right to exercise their free will the way they want. Now, luckily, in a civilized society, we have certain laws and rules that try to guide people or encourage people or penalize if they don't you know, to use that free will somewhat intelligently in a more harmonious, civilized way. And there are people that aren't going to do that. And there are people that, you know, depending on their level of consciousness, are going to express it the way they want. 
but free will is what makes the game work. Okay. So next time somebody says, yeah, oh, yeah, you have no right to say that, or you say, oh, you, how do you don't have a right to? Well, they do because they have free will, right? So, uh, but choices have consequences, and that consequence maybe you don't. If you live with somebody who leaves their clothes all over the floor, you don't have any right to change them. You have every right to choose whether you want to live with a messy pig or not. You get the idea? Absolutely. And you can encourage and you can invite, but you don't get to impose. Because the second you try to impose your model of the world onto somebody else, as right as it is to everybody that has their own model of the world, otherwise it wouldn't be their model of the world, you know, you don't get to enforce that. And if you try to enforce it, you're going to get resistance based upon what we talked about earlier for unsolicited coaching and circuit breakers. Making sense? Absolutely. No, you you, you break it down so well, and I just appreciate all the, the insight here, Peter. Uh, I did want to go back if we don't think, uh, don't have too much time left. You know, you've you've had a very busy day, and it's getting late back there. But um, uh, just to go back to the we were talking about the different points of view in the household. And the, the, the follow-up question I had from, from that was, what do we do? How do we talk to our kids if we don't even know ourselves about the current situation? How do, you know, they're hearing things from their friends, their teachers, their, you know, adults, both points of view. How, how would you suggest we do that? To, to, to an extent, that clearly depends on the age. Yeah, you're going to have a different conversation with a scared four-year-old as opposed to a scared ten-year-old. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Absolutely. However, and I, I'm I'm giving opinion here. I'm not giving advice because okay. I don't have children. That's fair. Yeah, my, my, mine are four-legged and they sit behind me, as you can kind of see them. Desperately, desperately wondering when you know I'm going to be taking them out. And so, yeah, Jack, Jack Russells have two speeds. They have 110 and zero, and they're getting very close to wanting it to be 110. I can tell you. Yeah, oh, there's one now. Okay. And so, uh, and so, depends. Context is definitive, right? But as a generalization, uh, for the opinion that I would give there, yeah, I would encourage people to have a uh, do their own research in a way that allowed them to, as we go back to the beginning, ask better questions, because. If you ask the right questions, most of the fear goes away. Now, I mentioned before, and I don't want to get too into it here because I'll get tempted and we'll be on for another hour, but if you ask the right questions, it's almost impossible right now to be scared of what you think is out there. You know, And anyone that can't see that has been too programmed by narrative that doesn't have their best interests at heart. Uh, to answer your question, I would, uh, to the kids, I would understand that regardless of what we say to our kids, example, you know, trumps verbalization. Yeah? Example beats verbalization. Those that have a trigger to the word trumps. Right? And so you can tell your kids not to smoke till you're blue in the face, but if you're sparking up 20 a day, I've got news for you. Yeah? Probably won't by the time they're 13, you're going to be sharing cigarettes. It's do what you do, which is why, as I said, you have a great opportunity right now, if you've got a lot of uncertainty in the household, to show up as a pillar of, hey, guys, listen, there's a lot of stuff here. We may lose the house. 
may have to live in a smaller one. It'll be an adventure. It's okay. Just tell the kids everything's going to be okay. What they're looking for is reassurance, especially in the heat of uncertainty with so many mixed messages with mixed agendas behind those messages that don't have their level of certainty at heart. Right? And, um, and that's now starting to come out. So giving them some level of reassurance that everything's going to be okay. If mom and dad are happy and they tell me it's going to be okay, then I'm going to believe it. Now, of course, you have to be somewhat congruent in your ability to communicate that, right? Saying everything's okay as you, like, cry into a pillow drinking a you know, scotch on the rocks. Not gonna is work. Not going to work, right? So, yeah, there is that aspect. But if you teach them how to ask better questions, and, again, the easy questions here are, you know, what is all of this hype? built on it's built on two statistics that are driving the pantomime right now which is new cases and death rates and that's where you see the agenda starts on around because right now roger i'll be very honest and it's 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 kind of amusing to me to watch as you know we kind of predicted three months ago uh, on there there is a two horse race right now and the two horses in the race are this it's my opinion Clearly. One is the actual data that is now coming out that is being assessed and put forward by people that don't have the agenda that was driving the original data. Right? Because you can scare a lot of people on speculation. It's pretty easy. Yeah. The sky's falling in, you know, this might what happened, yada yada. But when you have historical data that pretty much says, sorry, Chicken Little didn't know his deal, then it's pretty hard for Chicken Little to scare people anymore, right? Yeah. So there is a race right now. The race is between the actual data, which unequivocally, absolutely, 100% factually, when stripped out of all of the biases, when stripped out of all of the manipulation, when you look at the cold, hard data shows you that the death rate for COVID is the same as driving a car. In England, it's actually the same as falling downstairs. There is not one recorded case of any child passing it to an adult in history, let alone the last six months, right? That every single country that didn't lock down had zero statistical significantly different data on their curve than those that did. Fact. Okay, how you want to try to manipulate it to put your confirmation biases on, strip that away, numbers don't lie. Yeah, I, I could go on and on and on, right? There are two horses. The one horse, which is the actual data that is now coming out stripped of bias, versus the other horse, which basically is riding the race and counting on the strategy of if you tell a lie often enough, people will believe it. And there are your horses. Now, I'm not actually on the track, to be fair. I, I'm, I'm not starring as a cameo, as an extra, as yeah, even as a credit in the Corona movie. Not interested. Yeah, I, yeah, my own personal biases are irrelevant to anybody watching this. Uh, if they're interested in them, I can sum it up in one word. It's not COVID-19, it's COVID-19. But that's that's my own personal agenda on there. But if somebody is committed to believing what they want to believe through their confirmation bias, then I'm, I'm, I'm totally okay with that. They're not in my movie. 
right? That's fine. They're in their movie, and I have absolutely no right to interfere with the script in their movie. That's cool. Yeah. You be you, me be me, everybody happy, right? But that's kind of the two-horse race going on at, at present. And I take comfort in that going back to the book I recommended earlier, not just mine, which is a, a great read, shameless book plug in the middle but no the book power versus force listen to it power versus force and the entire aspect of that book is that everything that calibrates lower than the level of integrity is based upon force mm. force is transient it creates Change in the moment because it's applied directly, but it never lasts over time. Power is immovable and it lasts over time. Wow. Power beats force over time every time. So there will be a lot of books written. I think I alluded to the title, but one of them may be in our last podcast. I think I called it The Corona Nocebo. Yes. Right. Um, there will be politicians who definitely, uh, and I'm not talking about the US here, I'm, I'm talking about globally, especially in yeah, places like Europe. There will be politicians that will not survive the next round of elections based upon the public and now seeing that they were sold a massive overhyped, over-exaggerated strategy that had not their health agenda at heart, but some other agendas at heart. And again, if I was to hold up a book, Roger, and I was to turn it upside down and ask you to read, you would struggle because the patterns wouldn't fit. And it would be kind of like Ugh. the brain would be hesitant, right? Yeah. If you would just turn that book 180 degrees, everything would suddenly become clear and fall into place. So what I'd invite people to do before they run off on their own confirmation bias levels of agenda is – Look, if you turn this through a certain angle, things start to become a lot clearer. And when you look at this, for example, I'll throw one lens out there, that from the start, there's enough evidence to show this, that this was a very intelligent and very strategically constructed vaccine sales campaign. When you look at it through those lenses, everything kind of comes into focus. Now, there's various other lenses. And a Trump destabilization campaign is a pretty easy label, uh, lens to look through to see that. Because this virus seems to yeah, be targeting some very interesting locations. Yeah? And the Democratic governors versus the Republican governors seem to have some very diaposing strategies. I mean, yeah, it's very politicized, this particular virus. Yeah? Uh, the media, which happened to be owned by the pharmaceutical companies, it's no... Yeah, surprise, go check out the advertising revenues and, and who basically owns them. Um, have an agenda. And they had no one's talking about improving the number one vaccine that no one has ever been able to compete with called your immune system. Hmm. Absolutely honed to evolutionary perfection over millions of years. Two million years, if you want to look at yeah, Homo sapiens um, as, a, as a history, that has far more intelligence, far more intelligence and ability to take any external invader, including, by the way, the millions of coronavirus uh, 
cells that operate in your mouth, let alone the billions of coronaviruses that are actually in your body 24-7 that your body quite happily keeps under control. And the fact that you know, every single graph will show you that corona is basically flu. It's been hijacked with a new label. Maybe a little more virulent. It does. Things adapt. It's okay. But it is. Why would you have to fraudulently and openly fraudulently manipulate death certificates, right? If, if they had our agenda at heart, why would they need to manipulate the figures unless there was an agenda behind it? And I mentioned this on our last podcast. I, I predicted this based upon how they did the same with AIDS and HIV. Yeah, and I recommend people go read How to Lie with Statistics, if you recall, because it's very easy to put your point across with a set of numbers. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening. And yeah, every single... Oh, by the way, it's again, it, 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 it's not... Anyway, it's, it's so the elusive obvious, it's not even hard to find. Fauci puts in $500 million of U.S. taxpayers' money to develop a vaccine that he owns part of the patents on. I mean, is any conflict of interest coming out of that? Even if it was, even if it had a modicum, a, a fraction of efficiency, Bear in mind, we've had the flu vaccine for 40 years and not cured flu. Hello. Even if it was good and didn't have the horrendous side effects now being reported in the trials, guess what? Who would want it anyway, knowing that that's how it's made with the agendas the, and the conflicts of interest behind it? I don't care if, yeah, I don't care if the steak looks good. I've seen how you slaughtered the animal and I ain't interested. All right, that's that's where it's at. So, how do people protect themselves through this, Peter, physically and mentally? How do people do that? Uh, well, physically, I say you have the most incredible, yeah, no side effects vaccine available to you, twenty four seven within the immune system. Right? It's you know, that, that, go look at improving that and giving that more attention than some made up junk injection that if you read if you if you just literally listed the ingredients without telling what it was and go give it to a pathologist and say should i put this inside me and then make your choice right that aside but if you want mental uh protection because here's what we know every single thought produces a chemical a neuropeptide a hormone a neurotransmitter that affects your chemistry, which affects your immune system, which affects your well-being, then your role is to care more about you know, the, the diet of thoughts you're thinking than food you're eating. And, and there's two ways to improve your mental diet. One is to stop putting the crap in you shouldn't be putting in, same as the physical diet. And the other is to put in the things you should be putting in. Now, if you want to chunk it down, yeah, turn off the freaking media. Yeah, if you want a cure-all for this particular pandemic, then it's called the little red button on your remote control. But so many people have been suckered into taking the, uh, the, the crack at the school gates that then makes them become dependent 
on what's the next thing, because the media's job is to induce uncertainty and therefore you freak out, therefore you go back to the media to try to get the certainty, which is then fueled with more uncertainty and the cycle perpetuates so that you can be a viewing statistic and justify rate cards so that farmer can yeah, sell you more crap. You get the idea. Anyway, yeah. now, the diet you want to be most concerned about is not the food you're eating, although please be concerned about that if you want to put your immune system in place with a physical rule set, but it's the thoughts you're thinking. And you cannot think a thought of harmonious gratitude, joy, if you are subject to being programmed by external influences that you have the ability to control with that little red button. So choose. I know it's tempting right now because, again, a lot of people, again, their egos involved to try to weigh in to prove they're right. And I have no, and, and guys, if I'm proved a thousand percent wrong, happy with that. I'm, I'm more interested in unbiased data than I am in projected, you know, media vomit of misinformation, right? And that, that's social distancing. Yeah. Social disinformation, no clinical studies, no trials, no time in history, nothing that can ever be validated as proved that that'll stop any kind of spread of any disease. And again, look at any country that didn't practice versus did practice, especially in Asia, zero difference on the curve. All right, the whole mask thing, yeah, for the final weigh-in before we get off topic. <laughs> yeah. Why would you wear a mask now and not when it was at its peak? Pretty simple. Go back to turning the book the right way around and look at what the agenda is. The agenda of wearing a mask is not to be safe. If you think that, I'm sorry, do your research, you're in Disneyland. And, oh, but it's about other people. How, yeah. If you want to be guilt-tricked or if they want to weaponize guilt in order to try to get you to further their agenda, all right, that's pretty despicable. Masks, I'll say it categorically right now and feel free to prove me wrong. Masks are not designed to keep you safe. They are designed to keep you scared because nobody dies of flu in summer, comparatively. So right now, it would be all over. Can't allow that to happen. What's the best way to keep it in the minds of the public? One, increase testing, so therefore we can justify new cases. I saw a great meme the other day. It's like, there's no new cases, there's new levels of testing. The tests are fundamentally flawed. We know that. They don't actually test the virus. They're 80% false positive. And by the way, if I test 100,000 people, 20,000 people are going to test positive. Oh, my God, 20,000 new cases. Why are we seeing a spike? Uh, because they've had time to make more new test kits and ramp up their testing facility. Oh, my God, second wave. No. Like hell. All right? Just ne never going to happen. All right? So, yeah, if you did a, a massive increase in IQ tests, guess what? Breaking news, 20,000 new idiots suddenly discovered. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Most of them wearing masks probably tonight. It's unfair. I, I because most people that are wearing masks right sure. now, they have to empathize. I've been programmed by fear, and they're doing the right thing in their mind. But what, what are people supposed to do? You cannot get into a store. You cannot go anywhere without a mask on. What are people yeah. supposed to do? It's not just about, and same here in Spain, by the way. Sometimes you have to play the game to win the game. Okay. Right? I don't ride my horse about it. I feel sorry for the store assistants. And by the way, I mean, in America more than anywhere else, you have more lawyers looking for a fee than any other country on the planet, right? The amount of lawsuits that I can see coming out against these governors when the data shows the data, and you say, hang on a minute, you just compromised my health you just semi-asphyxiated me. You create 
in acidosis over zero science or junk science or misquoted yeah, statistics so that you could further an agenda that will be proven as time unfolds. How many lawsuits do you think lawyers are quite happily lining up for to go, oh, you made me wear a mask. I, I work as a waiter all day. But guess what? I've got allergies now. I've got asthma now. I've got this now. I'm feeling awesome. I've got uh, yeah, awful. Yeah. Millions of people. That is the next wave of clogging up the courts when all of this BS unravels. Right? It's just, yeah, it's going to be yeah, heart wrenching to watch. Unbelievable. Look, Peter, I, I so appreciate you coming on. We have to do this again uh, soon, I hope, because I'm up. This, this, this is a really good conversation. And what I like is I don't have to talk much. I just sit back and look <laughs> the audience, which is wonderful. But no, honestly, thank you so much for coming on. Um, please, uh, let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, where could people get the book? How do they reach you if they want to learn more about Peter Sage? Uh, if you go to my website at petersage.com, uh, there's a lot of stuff on there. I try and give as much content away as I can on YouTube. In fact, the book right now, again, I'm very blessed that it's it's literally, it couldn't have been written for a better time in history. I mean, you, you, you've read the book. It's it's called An Inspirational Guide to Conquering Adversity. There's more strategies and high-end stuff in there that people were paying me 50 grand a year to learn. That, that was who it was written for. That wasn't a book I wrote for, yeah, COVID 1984, right? This was a book that was written as the letters unfolding in real time to show people how to deal with anything at one of the most testing times of my life and how I could turn it around into one of the greatest adventures that's gone on to help thousands and thousands of people. Forget the book I'm talking about, yeah, the, the legacy that was left prior to it being published. I have to say real quick, Peter, just so people know, I this book had me very emotional. I think I told you that in our first interview. This stories in here, because you wrote this while you were in that's the amazing part of it. So um, I highly, highly recommend people get this. It's part diary, part how-to manual, tradecraft, and part you couldn't make it up in Israel. However, my mission in the current climate, Roger, is to give that book away to as many people as I can. So... Don't go to Barnes and Noble and spend twenty four ninety five. Yeah, okay. go to getpeatsbook.com and I will give it. If you're in the US, I think it's less than ten bucks shipping. Okay, I'll send you a physical copy. I pay for the book myself. Yeah, yeah. we have to pay, we have to pay the fulfillment house and all the other stuff, but it's under ten bucks, and you can get that. So it's it's literally like a third cheaper than you buy it in the shops or, or what have you. So I want as many people to get that as possible. GetPeatsBook.com. You can go and grab it now. There's also an audio and digital and all the other stuff that you can grab if you wish. So that's my commitment to helping people right now as much as I can. Wonderful. Uh, Peter, if someone is interested in your coaching, if they're saying, I'm, you know, at the peak of my career or I'm trying to accelerate, I need someone like Peter Sage to help me get through that glass ceiling. How, how do they contact you for that everything's on my website yeah you can you can go and look at the coaching stuff i've got group coaching programs which are, are, are yeah, very affordable uh, i've got um uh, my private coaching one-on-one is is pretty high-end as you know because i limit myself uh, i'm actually flying into the u.s in, in a couple of weeks to uh, uh to do coaching with some high-level ceos up in uh, knoxville and in uh, wyoming of all places wonderful and, and uh, then i should be coming back via new york well, well, maybe we'll have to meet. We'll have that, to, that may be, yeah, I've just got I've just got agreement today that there's a team in Buffalo that would like me to come in and do some training for some of their CEOs as well. So wonderful. Uh, I'm around. Great, great. 
Well, as always, thank you so much uh, for all of your time. You're very gracious. Your dogs probably need to go out. They've been they've been there all afternoon, all evening. Yeah, I'll, sh I'll show you how I say that. Uh, if I um, they can't see me, and I'm actually talking to you right now. But if if I simply go and say, and the question is, do you want to go walkies? That will probably have a, an impact. That's definitely heard that. Right, we're not going to tease them any longer. Thanks. Um, so much. Appreciate you on the show. And I appreciate you, Roger. I appreciate everybody that's given us their time today as well. And um, yeah, as I say, nobody but nobody has the right to manipulate you outside of your model of the world, right? Ask better questions. Always peel back the onion and ask what's the agenda driving this data before you just accept it and internalize it. Come to a place that I am full stop before you start putting labels on of either low self-esteem or division based upon my model of the world and realize that you arguing your point is never going to switch the other person's point of view. All it's going to do is drive a bigger wedge between you. And so rather than trying to walk around feeling significant because you're right and you have to prove it, let you be you, let others be themselves and start playing the game of raising the significance of others and see how your life changes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for leaving us on that positive note. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk soon, Peter. Look forward to it. Love you, man. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review, as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one -on -one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we could help. You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.